Welcome listeners to Creators and COVID, a podcast where I talk to creatives about their experiences coping with the coronavirus pandemic. Whether you started a new business and made something incredible or barely managed to survive with your sanity, we want to normalize those stories and create an archive so that the future can look back at our experiences and learn about the many forms coping and surviving take on in a global crisis. Welcome back for a bonus episode of Creators in COVID with me, your host, Jodita Davis. Today's guest is multi-hyphenate creator, Tanya Pinkins. Tanya is currently promoting her debut film, Red Pill, about a Black woman who traveled with her friends deep into a red conservative area. That experience ends up being the most horrifying of her life. Tanya directed, wrote, and she stars in Red Pill. Today on Creators in COVID, Tanya shares the story of editing Red Pill while also in production with a show currently running called Women of the Movement, a series streaming on ABC and Hulu. In the series, Tanya stars as Alma, Mamie Till's mother. Everyone, and you know the story of Emma Till. Production was in Mississippi just before the vaccine became available. Tanya sits down with us to talk about her experience while editing Red Pill and in production with Women of the Movement in Mississippi around the time of the insurrection, January 6th, 2021. It all sounds like a deleted chapter of Red Pill. Trust me. So in this episode, we'll explore what happens when the environment you have to create in is hostile. The stress level is high. And the history of injustice is permeating the place so loud that it's hard to ignore. We'll talk about it next on Creators in COVID bonus episode 10, when it's time to just leave. So we have uh, Tanya Pinkins here, who's going to tell us about, you know, a, a project you did, which is now, which is airing right now as we're recording this, Women of the Movement, during lockdown in the South, in a red state, with all mm-hmm. that politics, with everything going on, had to, had to, had to get at least a few words for, for you for this podcast, because when we're talking about creators and COVID, we need to talk to talk about, you know, doing your craft in the middle of uh, the lockdowns in a place that tried to deny that the virus even ha- mm-hmm. was happening. So welcome, Tanya, first. And thank you for, for you know, being willing to sit down and talk with me. My pleasure. My pleasure, Jania. My pleasure all the time. So tell us your story. Tell us what happened. Well, I have to just first say that I have had probably had a different lockdown experience than most people. And I actually, I can't say most people because down in Panama, I've met a lot of people who experienced the lockdown in the way that I did. It has been really good for me. This opportunity to get off the capitalism treadmill <laughs> has just been a great, great gift, a chance to decolonize my mind and to think thoughts that I wouldn't have been able to think if I was caught up in the hustle and go that is trying to be an actor or artist in show business that, you know, there's all these things that people are telling you, you got to do, you got to do, and then when suddenly all of that just stops and you realize that all these imperatives, clearly they can't be that imperative because they can't happen right now. (laughs) 
And so then it's like, oh, well, what is real? What is true? What does sustain me? So um, this has been an incredibly creative time for me, um, life altering time for me in the best possible way. Was down in Mississippi, left on January 5th was sent down to Mississippi, uh, flew into Memphis, and they wanted me to drive myself to Mississippi on the day of the Georgia runoff. And <laughs> I was like, no, that's not going to happen. Um, so, you know, we asked for a driver. We assumed that I would have a driver at all times because I did not want to drive in Mississippi, but I only got a driver to drive me to the hotel uh, in Mississippi. And thereafter, had to drive myself everywhere. That meant drive myself for meals because we didn't have any communal meals. We couldn't eat together. We couldn't ride together. It was wintertime. <sighs> Boy, Mississippi. I mean, Mississippi changed my life. Really understanding that coming from a big city like New York or even Chicago, the state's rights things really means that America really is like Europe. And from one state to the next, you're going from another country, culture, laws. Those people in Mississippi are two steps out of slavery. I think I said to you before that I never understood why people enjoyed reality TV so much. And when I went to Mississippi, I thought, oh, it's aspirational. Because if you could live in one of those reality TV houses, that is a thousand times better than the the shacks and the trailers that most of our people are living in in Mississippi. Wow, this is this is a a lot to to kind of take in. So this this was your first time being in Mississippi, being in that type of area. Mississippi was a place I said I didn't. Mississippi and Alabama were two places I said I never needed to go. And uh, yeah, it was my first time. And my family is from uh, Rolling Fork, Mississippi. There's actually a Pinkins Road in Rolling Fork, Mississippi. When this was happening, you go from, um, and it was in January when the virus was still just sort of, people didn't know what it was. Um, but well, I knew what it was. I knew what it was <laughs> before. I was clear. Mm-hmm. I was very, very clear. So I, I didn't care what other people didn't know. I, I knew, I knew, and I've been wearing KN94 and 95 masks since before the official lockdown in the United States in 2020. And what happened when, you know, when you got around the people and you were masked up and you were, you know, you had to do this alone. What was that like? Well, I'm very good alone. So being alone <laughs> isn't uh, isn't really hard for me. I think that the, you know, also I was in the midst of the final edit of Red Pill while I was down there. And so I was trying to remotely finish the edit of Red Pill from a distance and doing a uh, women of movement. So for that first, the first, so there were six episodes. I was in the first three, then not in the next two. And then in the final episode. And so for the time that I was shooting, I would have the contact with other actors when I went on set, when I was in a scene on set. But other than that, we were alone. And the worst part of being alone down there is when we were in a Holiday Inn on a highway that clearly was not designed for long-term living. So it was a Holiday Inn on a levee and it had casement windows. So no air 
no air circulation for three months. And I was scared to take a walk because when we got down there, it was hunting season. And I remember going to the Waffle House and all, all the, the people were dressed in head to toe camouflage, just like the red pill women in my movie. And I was like, oh my God, I, how did I know this? One of my 80 some year old friends who lives in Greenwood, she told me that she never takes a walk without her snub nose. And she you know, offered to lend me one. And I was like, look, I don't really want to have to shoot somebody to take a walk. And I'm like, they got camouflage on there. I'm just the target, you know? So couldn't really exercise. For the longest, I thought that the levee we lived on was the, the river that they'd thrown Emmett's body into. It was not. But there was this sense every time I had to drive across that levee because that was the only way we could leave. I had to get on a levee to drive to work when I worked. That was terrifying. Every tree. I love trees. Trees are like my family. Every tree in Mississippi looked like a lynching tree. They were angry. And I just every time I would be driving those roads, I would think who was hung there. I would imagine us on these fields and trying to escape and running through these swamps and these rivers like that was what my energy was was thinking about the entire time I was in Mississippi. And I'm thinking back to Red Pill as well. <laughs> you Editing Red Pill shooting women of the movement, that must have been the, the height of stress and in, in, in the middle of this all. How did you keep it together? I mean, you you got through Red Pill. You got it done. You got it packaged and then started marketing it immediately. You you got through the shooting of this uh, this series and, it, and without even, you know, and no one can tell, it, it doesn't even seem like it, it affected you, but how did you keep it together during all of this happening, all this stress upon you? That sounds like a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. And it got very, very ugly. It got very, very ugly down there. Um, I guess I can tell this story because I put it in my book. So this will be the first time I've verbally told this story. When we agreed to come down there, we were required to sign a contract that we would not leave the city for the entire shooting period, which could have gone as long as five months. Uh, Even if we were not shooting, we had to sign that we would not leave town. And so I only shot about 10 days in the three months that we were there. And yet I was there in this, this hotel and the internet wasn't good. And I couldn't really, you know, I had to turn over the final finishing of my film to, to other people because I couldn't even get on the internet or be on a zoom with them. And the unions had um, the AMPTP. I don't really know what that means, but the AMPTP uh, had negotiated something where any crew members who were on locations and could not leave home because of COVID for periods of time would uh, be paid a kind of stipend for each week that they were unable to go and seek other work because they had to be in the bubble and quarantined. So about um, a month after I had finished shooting and I'm now waiting for the next two episodes before I'm going to even work again, I'm checking in with my agents about uh, where the money, where's the COVID payments? Where are my COVID payments? And my agent's like, oh yeah, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Finally, she calls me one time and she says, I got a phone call that said, um, you're not getting a COVID payment because they told you you could go home and you said you were comfortable and wanted to stay. That was the most psychotic, insane thing I had ever heard of in my life, that I would ever 
choose to stay in Mississippi in a room with no windows for no pay when I could be home editing my own feature film, my first and only first feature film. And this became a huge thing. And people wrote letters to say when I said it and how I said it. And me and my agent like, well, why wasn't this in writing? Because this is a contractual thing. And, you know, of course, it was some white woman who was saying that I said this and she couldn't remember when. But it was in a it, we were just in the lobby and a passing by in a friendly conversation. I just said I wanted to stay. And, and, and they were being kind to let me keep my car in my hotel when they needed spaces. And we're like, why isn't this in writing? <laughs> Makes no sense. That makes no sense at all. Wow. <laughs> well, it, it was like, I mean, at one point I wrote an email and I said, you know, Ray said I went from DEFCON 5 from the lobby to the to the third floor. I wrote an email to the bosses and I was like, it's so amazing that we're doing this, this film about how a, a white woman's lie got a little boy killed and started the modern civil rights movement. And I said, um, well, uh, I hope that, you know, this woman, white woman has told a whole bunch of lies and I hope I don't have to die to start the next one. The days of blaming it on the black people are over. Yes, yes, um, yes, yes, yes. I'm sure I've been blacklisted for all of that. And it went to HR and HR determined that no harm was done. And I'm like, no harm was done. If she didn't lie, then you calling me a liar. I don't know how no harm was done. And all I requested was, I said, I need to have a conversation with the bosses for them to understand that this, that first of all, there was no thinking involved about the different kinds of people that they were bringing down there. Just the fact that they would ask a black woman to drive herself from Memphis to Mississippi on the day of the Georgia, like, like, they, yes. you know, cause their attitude was, well, everybody was treated the same and we didn't, you know, and it's like, no, 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 no. There's nothing so unequal as to treat unequals equally. And, um, but I didn't get that. So, you know, this is an equity versus equality thing. Um, this is where that comes up again. <laughs> wow. It, it didn't dawn on anybody that the, just the fact that you were a black woman in Mississippi at this time, that that is one reason why this would not happen. This, well, this conversation would never happen. Well, I think because there were so many black people all through the South who were driving in as day players, they're like, well, black people, you know, black people is comfortable. But like, I'm not from the South. <laughs> I'm a black woman from the North. <laughs> okay. I'm thinking about Fannie Lou Hamer and Shermer and Goodman and Cheney. And uh, whew, and then the next day was the, the insurrection. Oh and we down there, you know, the Confederate flags are everywhere down there. It was very stressful. And every time I had to drive myself somewhere, I'm just terrified. I remember the day that they had to shoot, um, they were shooting in the back of a, 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 a bar or something where they beat them. And I remember the crew people were talking about getting lost and being on these back roads in Mississippi where their phones weren't working and how terrified they were just driving to set in Mississippi. They didn't put any extra security with you guys at all? They only had security on the sets of the trial at the courthouse because um, somebody kept showing up with a gun and threatening people. So that happened twice. But other than that, oh, oh actually, someone showed up on, an, on our main location once. But no, there was no extra security. I, I did not know that y'all went through through this. It's, so, it's almost like the, 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 the reliving part of that. We, well, we talked about this even. Um, and the interview for women of the movement that some of that that was happening down there, some of what Mississippi looked like back then, it's still there. Some of that racism, oh. that veil of silence, that 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 
those special rules and laws that they only they have and that kind of feeling of oppression? Oh, no, no, no. That's not no feeling. This is reality. So my I looked up, you know, I knew I had Pinkins down there. So I looked up Pinkins on Google and found a relative named Ty Pinkins. We can't figure out how we were related, but he wrote a book about, you know, going from being a sharecropper to the White House. And I went and met Ty. Ty was on um, Obama's team, one of six who lived in the White House with Obama and traveled with him. And then after that, he went to law school and moved back down to Mississippi because child Mississippi, you know, to be a judge in Mississippi, it's an elected position and you don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to go to law school. You could just get graduate high school and be in GED and you can be, a, you know, one of the local judges and the black people down there, they get sent to court because they, you know, you get sick, you go to the hospital, you're, the hospitals down there could charge you less money because you don't have money, but they don't have to tell you that. And the state of Mississippi won't take the federal money that they will give them. So they charge these black people this money that, that, that they're going to take as a loss. The black people get in debt, take these serious loans, get sick again, get into this cycle of impoverishment, get taken to court with judges who aren't lawyers against companies that have lawyers. And you can just see how this cycle of poverty continues and continues and continues. So he was part of a pilot project where he would literally drive like 300 miles a day, just going from court to court to try to tell you, he couldn't be a lawyer for anybody, but trying to tell people their basic rights. Like if they say an amount of money that you don't owe, you can say it's wrong. Or if they don't show up, you can say, dismiss the case. Like we don't even know our basic rights. Right. And so we don't have any down there. Creators in COVID is brought to you by Vero. Vero is a social network designed for connection, not engagement. I love it because it's a place for creators to be free from the algorithm and where episodes of this podcast will drop first 24 hours before anywhere else with a conversation about the episode to follow. That's right. Come to Vero and you get to have a conversation with me, Jenny Davis, and all of my friends and fans over there 24 hours before the rest of the world gets to see it. Download Vero for free from the App Store or Google Play and follow me, Jenny Davis, and share your thoughts and stories. And now on to the show. Um, the Pinkins family has land, a lot of land. Like I said, there's a Pinkins Road and on it is trailers because they can't get mortgages. They can't use their land as collateral to get money to build a house. They can get you know money to buy a trailer, as Ty said, that's going to fall apart before the, the bill is even paid on it. Uh, most of the restaurants that we went in were black people working, white unmasked people sitting down at the tables eating. Wow. Wow. And then, okay, so how did, how, uh, how did you self-care? <laughs> I, I'm just trying to, to like put together, how did you like, um, where did, how did you de-stress, uh, get away from some of this, even just for a, a little bit, for a second, um, for yourself? There was no way. There was no way to de-stress. There was no massage you could go take. There was nothing. I, it was like being in a cage, literally a cage. Couldn't even open the window to get some air. It was like living in a cage. So when they, you can imagine the insult to injury when they told me that I chose to do that mm-hmm. and for no pay, that, that no, you chose to do this. Oh, you, you, yeah. I, I mean, I'm still stressed about it. Hear hearing your voice <laughs> um oh my gosh oh my gosh so 
coming off of coming off of that. So, and you talked about, you know, going into this, you talked about how it's changed you. How has this, this experience changed you as a creator? It was really the straw to break the camel's back for me to realize that the American experiment has failed. It has failed. And what we in big cities like New York, Chicago, L.A., we don't live in we don't live in America at all. I can't keep pretending that everything is okay, And I'm just more aware of how everything that is fed to us is curated, even how they curate our heroes. You know, the, the way they frozen MLK in his in parts of his I have a dream speech. But he was already saying the American experiment had failed. Yes, but that's not the part of the story that they tell. And so just the, the realization of the curation and then sort of seeing myself down there and speaking out about something that was just wrong and going, oh, so you're going to be blacklisted. Like everybody else has a deal with the company. They're doing other projects with them, not me, because I spoke out about something that was just wrong and and realizing I'm not ever going to be able to not do that. You're like when they wrote the We See You White American Theater letter, you know, they, I was one of the first people before they published it, that they asked to sign it. And, you know, like major people asked me to come sign that. I said, I can't sign this. This is not my truth. I don't stay in rooms where people are oppressing me. It's going to change where I'm leaving the room. I love this. I love it. Um, Where are you going now? What's the next move for you um, in your career with your craft? I don't know. You know, it's interesting that you asked that. I was thinking about, you know, I wrote this 26 page letter about the hypocrisy of white and black theater makers. And I'm told that it's, you know, required reading for many universities now and Yale School of Drama. And then in this, quote, season of, you know, historic season of black theater, um, I found it fascinating that I wasn't invited to do a single play. Now, I don't think it's so great that those plays got to be done because most of them closed in two months because they hadn't cultivated the audience and they were basically using us as guinea pigs. Let's send them in and see if they live. And, you know, so I'm glad my friends got Broadway credits and wonderful for that. But ever since I won a Tony Award, I get offered Broadway shows every year that this one season where there's more Broadway plays and musicals than in the history of like 50 years of Broadway. And I didn't get invited to be in one. And I I had to take it to be that they knew that if they brought me in the room, real change would have to happen. And so really they were like, these are people who are going to be grateful for access and sing our praises for that. And that will let the pressure off of us. And that's predatory right there. That is. Wow. Wow. Um, You've you've got actually left me speechless. (laughs) Because I didn't realize that this was uh, this had happened to you and this was happening to you. I'm so sorry. Oh, don't be sorry. No, 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 no. My life is really good. It's it's this challenging place of realizing that when you like when you see when you are the child going, the emperor has new clothes. It has consequences. I wish that I could not be that. I wish that I did not see sometimes. But I had to leave the country because. Not only do I see, I can't keep quiet about what I see, and it's just not welcome most of the time. You realize you've become your your red pill character at the end, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, this is so meta. Oh, <laughs> oh, she goes from a woman who's speaking and nobody's hearing her to oh, 
Yeah, yeah, y'all got to watch Red Pill. Everybody who's listening to this, you've got to watch Red Pill 2020 by Tanya Pinkins, and you'll you'll listen. You'll you'll want to come back and listen to this because it's so. I don't know. I don't know. So you're, but you are, you look well-rested and you look, you're living um, well in Panama at least, right? (laughs) What is beautiful about Panama? Look, every country has problems. Let's Mm -hmm. Yes. It's not perfect. It's beautiful. And there's a lot of Brown Mm -hmm. and I don't have to listen to stupid conversations from people who don't understand and don't know. And because uh, the USA, you know, effed Panama in the ass, the Panamanians feel about America the way I do. And so every conversation I have is preaching to the choir and they tell me more things. Like I didn't, I did not know that Panama was a black Republic and that the USA imported Jim Crow to Panama. Oh, yeah. We signed agreements with them to lease the land to build the Panama. And then we said, laughed at them and said, you think that we would make an agreement with you? This is now sovereign U.S. territory, like someone moving into your living room and saying this is now my home and wouldn't allow the Panamanians to even live in what was called the Panama Canal Zone, just split the country in half and called it U.S. sovereign territory. It's where um, what's his name, whose daughter was on The View? He was born there. Uh, you know, he ran for vice. He ran for president, lost 45, called him a, you know, a, a wuss for, for getting caught, captured. You know who I'm talking about. He just died of a brain tumor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He, talking about. Yep. He was born in the McCain. Panama Canal Zone. Mm-hmm. He was born in the Panama Canal Zone, but ain't nobody doing no birtherism about him. Mm-mm. John okay. McCain. No, he ran, did. He, he ran for pe- right. president, didn't he? He ran for president, but he was born in the Panama Canal Zone, but that was U.S. sovereign territory. OK, um, nobody talks about the U.S. invasion of Panama in 1988, where we bombed the city and then disappeared the bodies and records of thousands of people. We supposedly were trying to get Noriega, but we occupied the entire center of the city. The U.S. military occupied the city. Noriega is right across the street. We bombed the city. We tried out bombs that we had never used before on Panama. You could have just walked across the street and arrested the the man if you really wanted him. We bombed the city, killing Mm. thousands of people. In 1964, uh, the U.S. had a flag at the highest point with cannons projected down on the rest of the Panama City. And some students wanted to climb and raise a Panamanian flag because it's Panama. And the U.S. just executed them, just killed them. Students trying to raise their flag in their country. So we don't even know the history of Panama. CRT, we don't know so much history. So being here is like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. You know the same people I know. I feel like we're going to get another horror movie (laughs) based in. Because I can like hear in your voice the the story developing. Stay tuned, right? Well, you know, yeah, I do have many more horror stories because I like horror. I just think it's a place mm-hmm. where you can say things and people can go, oh, that's so far-fetched. But you, you'd be like, yeah, it's far-fetched. That's what you think. That's yeah. About Red Pill. But, you know, all the articles about how the white women in the conservative movement are really the movers and shakers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So many people who missed the part about the black woman who was like trying to warn everybody and not being heard. And ooh, anyway, um, so yeah, almost prophetic. I, I 
so I can't wait to see what comes out of this. I know something is coming out of this day in Panama. This, this, once you're rested, once you get everything cleared out, I, I, I feel a story coming. May it be so. (laughs) Well, thank you for, thank you for, I'm going to, thank you for sharing your story with me and with the, um, the podcast audience. It's such a harrowing story. I'm, oh my God, I'm, I'm so Sorry, I, I just like I'm, I feel so sorry. I wish I could give you a hug. It's so so Don't much happened. Sorry for me. Uh, no, there's nothing to feel sorry for. It's mm-hmm. like everything. I try to take everything as a blessing. It's making me stronger, and I know that I'm supposed to write a bunch of books and tell stories because you know part of our colonization is we're told to buck up and not even share the stories of our abuse because we have to protect our abusers and their reputations. And I'm like, well, I guess that's not going to happen for me. <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm going to tell it all. Yeah. And they messed up it. They messed around and gave you a really good one. And then sent you to a place where there's an even better one. So well, <laughs> this is going to be, I, like I said, I can't wait to see what you come up with next. You've been listening to the Creators in COVID podcast. Many thanks to Vero for their partnership in this podcast. To Tanya Pinkins for sharing her story and to you for spending your time with us. Be sure to check out Tanya's film, Red Pill 2020, streaming everywhere right now. And thank you for coming back this week for a bonus episode.